If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. That's starting at the very front of your Bible, going through the first five books of Moses, from Genesis through to Deuteronomy, and then some short historical books with uh, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And then we reach 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And this is a new beginning for us, a new series in 2 Samuel, Establishing a Kingdom. We have finished just a short series about a better kingdom, that is the kingdom of God. And here we see the kingdom of God being established amongst God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, several years ago, four or so years ago, we were together in a study of 1 Samuel. And so now we pick up where we left off, and we will spend about the next year together in this book as we read more about David, but more importantly, about David's God and King. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 1, beginning at verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. 
And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us this morning. That in it, we might see your mighty works. We might see your mighty Savior, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And that as we look, we would be changed. We would flee from sin. And we would seek to be more and more like Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this book of 2 Samuel is the conclusion of what was begun in 1 Samuel. In ancient days, 1 and 2 Samuel were actually one book. And because of that, 2 Samuel begins in what we might term a minor key. We would, I think, expect a book to begin on a note of encouragement, such as, 1 Samuel begins with the birth of Samuel and the promise of God. But 2 Samuel picks up a story that's already in place. And it has a message for us. We can learn in times of sorrow. In fact, sometimes those are best for us. To show us that our hope is not in comfort or in peace but in God. And so, this morning, I would like us to see three aspects of our text, three events in our text. We see an ungodly liar. We see a godly grief. And we see a just judgment. An ungodly liar, a godly grief, and a just judgment. But before we begin in earnest, I think we, it would be helpful for us to have some background. I want to encourage you today and this week to take an hour or two and read through the book of 1 Samuel in its entirety. It will be very helpful for you to understand what is going on in this book. And often what is occurring is dependent upon events that have already happened. And we need to make sure we know what the biblical narrative is for us. But let me give you a sketch of 1 Samuel. Israel had asked God for a king. And they asked for a king because they wanted to be like the other nations around them. And so God gave them a king. A man who was handsome and tall, named Saul. And Saul began his kingship with a victory over Israel's enemies, defeating the Ammonites but he quickly went astray. He failed to wait upon the Lord and Samuel, and he took to himself an unlawful sacrifice. And then he showed his foolishness in taking a rash vow that would have cost his son Jonathan his life if the army had not intervened to save him. And Saul's disobedience and rashness culminated in the sparing of of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, whom God told him to destroy. 
Because of this disobedience, God chose David to be king. David was chosen not because he was the oldest or not because he was the strongest, but because he was a man after God's own heart. David trusted the Lord. And the very first thing we see him do is to go out into battle against the Philistine champion, Goliath. And then David became great friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and he served Saul worthily. But Saul became jealous of David, and he sought over and over again to trap David and to kill David. The irony is that David had several opportunities to kill Saul, to be rid of that persecution, to be free. But David wouldn't do that. He tells us, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. That's what David says about Saul in 1 Samuel 24. Eventually, David and his men fled to the Philistines. It was the only place where they could be safe from Saul's hand. And the Philistines, in turn, went up with an army to battle Israel. And David was faced with a real dilemma to fight against his own people, the people of Israel, or to betray the king who had kept him safe. Well, the Lord delivered David because the Philistine lords would not go into battle with David. They told the king to send David home. They didn't want to fight with him. And that leads to the end of the story in 1 Samuel. David went back to his home in Ziklag, and he found it was raided by Amalekites. The Amalekites had carried off his wives and the children and the families of his men, and they had taken plunder of all of the livestock and all that was left behind. And David pursued the Amalekites, and by God's grace, he defeated them and recovered all of the families and all that was stolen and brought it all back to Ziklag. Meanwhile... Saul and Israel went up into battle against the Philistines, and they were defeated. Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer were all killed. Saul, by his own hand. The end of 1 Samuel is very dark. That is where we pick up our story. We know this. That is our biblical narrator's story. And verse 1 sets all of this up for us. It tells us, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Our text tells us that Saul is dead. That David has defeated Amalek. That David is now waiting for news from the battle that he knows is going on. Remember, he was a part of that army going up to fight Israel. And all of this establishes David's complete innocence in the death of Saul. There would have been some who would have delighted in accusing David as being a part of Saul's death. After all, they would say, wasn't David a part of the Philistine army? Wasn't David pursued by Saul? Wasn't there enmity between them? Wouldn't David have used this opportunity to seize the throne when Saul was gone? But what our text tells us 
is that David could not have been responsible for Saul's death. In fact, it was impossible. He was off fighting another battle several days away when Saul met his end. Well, a man now comes into David's camp. You can imagine the scene. It has been a few days, and David and his men are still putting the camp and the village back together again. You can imagine homes have been burnt down. Families need to be reunited. Fences need to be mended for livestock. And this, as this man comes, he does not have good news. David might not know what the news is, but it has all the signs of disaster. He comes with classic signs of mourning. We see in verse 2. He has his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And this is an outward rendition of inner grief. You may wonder, why does he come with dirt on his head? And you may think, perhaps some of our moms amongst us who had children who like to play in sandboxes, and they, they go and they play out in the yard in the sandbox or in the mud, and they come back in, and there's dirt and sand places you didn't know dirt and sand could get. No, that's not what's going on here. This was intentional. He put the dirt on his head to show that he was shamed, that he was sorrowing. So even from a distance, David has an inkling that this is not good news. It's like someone wearing black at a funeral. Well, the most likely news that would come would be about the battle. David knew that was going on. And so you can imagine David braces himself for the bad news. Have you ever expected bad news? I mean, before you received it, someone comes up to you and says, we need to talk. By the way, don't ever do that to your pastor. If you need to talk to your pastor, say, we need to talk about this. Because you see, what happens is, when you expect bad news, when your doctor says, you need to come in so I can tell you about the results tomorrow. And you say, can't you just tell me now over the phone? No, 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 I've got to see you. Your mind starts racing to every possible and all possible bad news at the same time. You wonder if it's possible to be sick and to be hospitalized and to die and to come back to life, to be sick again and be in the hospital again. You don't know how to escape from this bad news. And that's, I think, what David is in a posture of. Well, we are right to anticipate this bad news. Because this young man comes with a sorrowful tale. David starts by asking him where he comes from. This is a way of getting at the problem. In verse 3, David says, where do you come from? And he answers, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And sure enough for David, the news is bad. He's in a state of mourning and he comes from the camp of Israel. And worse than that, he's escaped from the camp of Israel. This can't be good. And yet David hesitatingly asks in verse 4, how did it go? Tell me. I need to know. And the answer is worse than David expects. The young man says, the people have fled from the battle, and also many of them have fallen and have died. Now, 
This means that the Israelite army was routed. If you're not familiar with accounts of ancient battles, they all happen in the same general way. Two armies come and face each other. And because there's very little long-range weaponry, they have shields and swords, and they come together, and they front-on-front bash together and fight. And typically, some are killed in that part of the battle. But the worst part of the battle is when one side breaks and runs. And then you can imagine they drop their weapons, they turn their backs where they're not covered with armor, and then there is a rout and a slaughter. Almost every account from ancient Greece, ancient Persia, and ancient Rome ends that way in a battle. So David could just imagine the chaos, the death, the loss. But it's even worse than that. Saul and Jonathan are dead. Now, it's probable that this young man knew about David's relationship with Saul and his family. Because if you'll recall, at the end of 1 Samuel, three sons die with Saul on the battlefield. But only Jonathan is mentioned here. Why? Well, if you lived in Israel or around Israel at this time, you would know that Jonathan and David were the closest of friends. Closer than brothers. Willing to risk their lives for each other. And so this man would know that David would want to know what happened to Jonathan. But it gets more interesting. David asks him how he knows that Saul and Jonathan are dead. You know, they didn't have the internet in those days. He didn't get a tweet or text telling about battle casualties. And a battle is a place of chaos and smoke and dirt, and confusion. So David's right to ask. Don't just assume because there was a defeat. Tell me how you know. Now the man obviously thinks this is important news. He's traveled, our text tells us, several days to meet David. And he tells a story of how he just happened to come upon an abandoned Saul who begged him to kill him. And he tells this story in a way that puts himself in the best possible light. And he tells how he did the deed. And how he took the royal emblems, the crown and the armlet, in verse 10, and he brought them here to David. Now what is at work here? It seems obvious that this Amalekite expects some kind of reward. He's bringing... The kingship to David. David is the new king. He should at least get a mid-grade government job out of this. Perhaps a retirement. After all, the story is that he is heroic. And he's brought David the emblems of kingship. He would expect David to be happy that Saul is dead. No more running. No more going to the Philistines. No more worrying. Now I'm the king. But something is not right. We see this in verse 8. The young man reveals too many details in his story. Here's an aside, young people, you'll get for free. Don't ever think that you can lie and not be found out. You will always give details 
that will show your tale is false. Or you'll leave something out that will show you're a liar. Don't ever think you can fool mom and dad. You can't. And that's true for Amalekites too. Because in his story, he reveals this detail. He says that Saul said to him, who are you? Now, he needs some kind of transition here for Saul to recognize him for this conversation to be had. And so, to the Amalekite, this is just filler. It's a reason for the occasion of the conversation. And he answers, I am an Amalekite. But the question then comes to us, what on earth would he be doing in this battle? You see, we know that Amalekites are the enemy of Israel. We just got done talking about the earlier text in 1 Samuel where the Amalekites took off with all of the women and children and goods of the Israelites under David. It makes absolutely no sense. And even more, we know from 1 Samuel that a battle with the Amalekites cost Saul his kingdom. That God had told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. And then there are obvious holes in this story. Why would Saul be alone? Where's all his guard? Where's his armor bearer that we know was with him from the end of 1 Samuel? Why would he have to depend on an Amalekite that's just wandering around the battlefield? But you see, the Amalekite has really no choice. The truth would not paint him in a good light. He can't come up to David and say, well, you know, I was wandering on the edge of the battlefield, skulking around, hoping that after everyone was dead, I might sneak around and get some items that I could sell later for money. That doesn't sound so good, so heroic. And so, he's lying. That's important for us to realize here. And we know he's lying because of the biblical narrator. We know the true story from 1 Samuel. And it would seem that David would have seen through this story as well. Because after all, David has been on battlefields. He knows that the king doesn't go out by himself. He knows that the king doesn't put the emblems of monarchy on his head where the enemy can see him. And this text then becomes very important for our view of the Bible. Why do I say that? Because the Bible is true. The Bible is God's word. It is always true because it is breathed out by the Spirit of God for God's people. And yet some commentators view this second story as an equally valid story. That perhaps it competes with the biblical narrative in 1 Samuel and shows that that is wrong. And that David appears in a bad light because if this is the true story, then why does David take action against this honest young man who did everything he could to help Saul? You see, when you hear stories in the world that contradict the Bible, you need to believe the Bible, not false stories. The pastor, Dale Ralph Davis, warning, you're going to get a lot of Dale Ralph Davis in the next year. 
puts it so well. The solution is simple. The Amalekite lied. If you ever have a choice between the narrator and an Amalekite, always believe the narrator. Have you ever met an Amalekite that you could trust? That brings us to the second thing in our story, a godly grief. We might have expected David to finish dealing with the Amalekite here. You could picture the scene. The Amalekite is standing before David, and we read in verse 11, David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Can you imagine something more awkward? As the Amalekite stands there holding a crown and an armlet, and David and his men weep and gnash their teeth and tear their clothes and mourn. What do we do next? And we don't understand this because we value a resolution to the story more than the reality of the situation. David and his men immediately break out in grief, and that gives us an insight into both David's heart and David's leadership. Remember the context. David and these men are on the run from Saul. David's men have had to flee to the Philistines to escape Saul. That's caused them to lose their homes. Their families had been captured. They are not in the Saul fan club. They should have hated Saul and all of his leaders. They should be glad that Saul is gone. But how do they react here? There's no celebration. The Amalekite certainly expected one. That's how he plans to get his government job. But there is no feasting, no dressing up for joy. Instead, they tear their clothing and mourned and wept and fasted. You would have thought that David had died. What does that tell us? I think first it tells us that David lived consistently. David has told us over and over again that he did not wish Saul dead. He shows that now. He grieves because he wishes that this were not so. His actions match his words. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to live our lives consistent with God's word every day. Not just in the worst of times. Every day prepares us for the worst of times. Are you doing that now? Do you live with eternity in view? Or do you live duplicitously? Be the same person each and every day. Because God sees you in all situations. The second thing this tells us is that David was a leader. It's not just David who's affected this way, so are his men. And as I said previously, they would not be naturally drawn to this kind of grief. Why are they drawn to this grief? Because they saw David. They saw him following the Lord. They knew that his reaction was the godly reaction. And so they followed. Here is a lesson for parents. Your children do see your reactions. 
What are you teaching them by it? Do you point them to hope in Christ only in your devotions or only when you're in church? Or do they see you having hope in the hardest times? This year has been an opportunity for this, hasn't it? But I will tell you this, next year will be as well. There will be challenges and struggles that you will face. And others will watch how you react. The third thing that we see is that David placed a great importance on Israel and its well-being. David was not focused on his own personal success. He doesn't hear the news and say, yay, I'm the king. He knew that this news was bad for Israel. He knew it would mean heartache and loss. And he cared about others, especially God's people. David wept for the fallen. But we see that David does not just weep for the fallen. He also weeps for the judgment that he sees. Because this tragedy is not random. David knows, and actually we know, that this tragedy is a judgment from God. God had told Saul and others before about this through Samuel the prophet. There's even the great irony that we have here that God brings the news of this judgment through an Amalekite. The judgment is for Saul's failure to destroy the Amalekites. And so an Amalekite comes with this news of judgment. But now is not the time for self-righteousness from David. David could have seen these events through that lens. He could have said to himself, well, this wouldn't have happened to me. Because I always obey the Lord. And I do what he tells me to do. And I follow him. And I'm glad that David didn't do that for two reasons. The first is, David would have found himself wrong very quickly as we go through 2 Samuel. And the second is, it gives me hope for myself. Because it doesn't depend on my self-righteousness. It doesn't depend on me following the rules. Instead, David was fearful and sorrowful to see God's judgment. And so then the question comes to you and to me. How do we view God's judgment, especially when it comes on those who are our enemies? Do you rejoice when you hear that a political opponent has been destroyed by a scandal? Are you glad when someone who happens to attack you over and over again has something horrible happen to them? Does it give you some measure of satisfaction when a politically correct or an erring church is harmed? Once again, Davis puts it so well. Rather, such unbelief or error in the church should drive us to mourning and grief and prayer and sorrow. It calls for intercession more than for pronouncements. Beloved, we ought rather to be fearful and sorrowful in the face of God's judgment, knowing that 
but for the grace of God, there go I. We now come to the third and last thing that we see in the text. A just judgment. In verse 13, the interlude of grief is over. And now David begins to follow up to resolve this issue that has been brewing. David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now, this might seem like an odd question for David to ask, because David already knows he's an Amalekite. We were told that in verse 8. So why does David ask him again? And we presume that the man doesn't see the importance of this question, because he gives this fuller answer. If his initial answer put his foot in his mouth, now he's up to his knee. He says, I am the son of a sojourner. That is, this man's family has lived in Israel for some time. I think the best way for us to understand this biblical word, sojourner, to our modern ears, is to think about someone who lives in America as a resident alien with a green card. They've been in the country for a while. They have rights to stay and to work. They don't have all the rights of citizens, but they are a part of the community. Their children stay in the community. A sojourner had rights in Israel. That's key. Because David learns from this. And we should also that this Amalekite should have known better. He should have known that Israel's king was more than just a ruler. He wasn't like every other king. The kingdom of Israel was not like other kingdoms where power changed by the sword or the dagger in the middle of the night. No, to be the king of Israel was to be the Lord's anointed. That's why when Saul became the king, he was anointed By Samuel. And when David was set to replace Saul, he was also anointed. David lived by this truth. We know this from the book of 1 Samuel. Twice he had Saul in his hands. He could have ended that conflict, lived at home in peace, but he would not touch the Lord's anointed. And that's why David follows up here. In verse 14, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? You know what the king is. And if what you say is true, then you're acting against everything that you know. And you're guilty of a crime. Now, you may say, but pastor, he didn't do it. This is a lie. And yes, that's true. But first of all, his so-called confession shows the state of his heart. He's willing to tell others that he's willing to kill the king. And thinks it's no big deal. He's actually doing David a favor by violating God's law. He's not bothered by this in the least. And then the second thing is that he is going to pay for what he hoped to keep secret, lying to the king. And this should remind us about the truth 
of God's judgment. Too often, we live as if God only knows what we reveal to Him. Or what others around us should know. But this passage is, I think, an illustration of what Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the rooftops. It is not just public sins that we will be judged for. We'll be judged for secret ones as well. You may be here today living in sin, knowing that it is wrong, but taking comfort that no one knows about it. God knows. There's no escaping his judgment. Paul explicitly says in Romans 2 verse 16 that God will judge the secrets of men. Judgment is certain. Whether your sins are celebrated by our society and you hide in the forest, or whether you hide the sins, your sin will find you out. There is no way to avoid judgment. But there is hope. We have hope because there is one who has paid the penalty. Born sin. Purchased Forgiveness. That one is Jesus Christ, the true King. God's judgment is just, but God is merciful. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to obey all of His law. And to receive His just judgment and to pay the penalty in full. You don't need to fear God's judgment if you are in Christ. By trusting in Jesus and in his work that he has finished, you can be free from judgment, sin, and death. Will you trust him now? Now is the time to stop hiding. It's of no use. Now is the time to stop pretending that everything is just fine. Now is the time to understand that you are not Perfect, that you have sinned against God and others, and that those sins are perfectly known by God, and they are worthy of punishment. Now is the time to turn to Jesus in faith and say, Save me. I don't deserve it, but you've promised that salvation to me in your word. I trust you, Lord Jesus. Bring me from death to life. Give me forgiveness. Give me peace. In conclusion, this is not the most rousing or encouraging chapter in the Bible. There is death, lying, and judgment. But like all of the Bible, it points us to Jesus. And that is what we need. Today, every day, no matter how dark life is, no matter how lost you feel, Jesus, the Savior, is waiting to receive you.
Go to him. Go to him now. Let's pray.